you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Where can I find a circus that employs engineers? Can learning to prepare sushi impact engineering ideas? How can we rebrand science, technology, engineering, and math to be fun? How do we make STEM subjects more like driving a Ferrari than like driving a grocery getter? Listen in for the fun answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today, we have a high-energy, fun interview with an engineer who has started a high-tech circus. Creating more intelligent, creative, fun innovators is what we specialize in here at Tabletop Inventing as well. In fact, an opportunity is coming this summer to participate in our Inventors Bootcamp. I get really excited about Inventors Bootcamp because there's nothing more fun than a room full of teenagers building crazy engineering contraptions with 3D printers and wiring them up with a little electronic trickery and programming fun. It's enough to make your head spin. To find out more, visit www.ttinvent.com slash bootcamp now or you can just visit www.ttinvent.com that's www.ttinvent.com and click the inventors bootcamp button well grab a hold of something solid because today's podcast is gonna rock your world Brent Bushnell, the founder and CEO of 2-Bit Circus, is going to blow the doors off. Brent and his business partner Eric have started a high-tech circus staffed not with circus barkers and tightrope walkers, but with engineers, scientists, and computer programmers. Let's listen in to a high-flying conversation. Our guest today is Brent Bushnell. Brent is the CEO and co-founder of 2-Bit Circus along with Eric Gradman. And he describes himself as a lifelong engineer and entrepreneur. So, Brent, tell us a little more about yourself. Uh, yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, great to be on the show. Yes, I've been an engineer and entrepreneur ever since I was little. You know, my, my dad was a big nerd, and so he was always putting us in front of technology and tools and that kind of stuff. I mean, I'll never forget the first time he put me in front of the Internet. You know, it was probably 94 uh, 93 and you know I was at mosaic web browser I had no idea what I was looking at and I just sat there and read the help menu for a little while I can't imagine there were more than a few hundred websites on the internet at that point so that was the environment we always growing up in but he you know he was also an entrepreneur too so we were you know constantly doing various entrepreneurial things we didn't have just a lemonade stand we had like you know a lemonade supermarket with uh, you know all kinds of stuff that we picked up at Costco you know cliff bars and all that kind of stuff we'd, we'd sell mistletoe at Christmas in front of the supermarket and made our own jewelry and sold that and you know we really had fun building stuff and uh 
so another you know another project we did was my brother and I, junior year of high school uh, built a collectible tradable card game that we licensed to tops baseball cards it was a you know fun two-player game and uh, you know we missed a bunch of the year <laughs> trying to make print deadlines and designing new cards and whatnot it was my folks were always pretty understanding if we missed school if it had to do with you know building business <laughs> so did you recruit friends to help you with this how did you start thinking through the entrepreneurial things so it sounds like you grew up with that yeah so would would cruise around you know selling magazine subscriptions and candy bars with good friends at the time and and uh so would always try to rope folks in as, as much as possible you know it's more fun with friends anyway so we it was it was a good time and you you know you learn a lot trying to sell people stuff you know i mean i think that you know sales should be part of just about you know every bit of education because even if you're not going to be an entrepreneur, you got to sell yourself, you got to sell your ideas. A big company or small, you're going to have to be able to socialize with people and pick up on subtle cues and, and, and whatnot. That is the one thing that engineers tend not to be very good at, but you started off really early with that. And you're the first person to say on our podcast that everyone should have sales experience. Tell me a little bit more about that because you're describing a little bit of why. Tell me a little bit about your experience and how that helped early on to, you know, form and encourage you. Great. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, getting out there and trying to sell stuff. I mean, whether it was for candy bars for my baseball team or the mistletoe we were selling on Christmas, you, you know, it's having to be concise and, you know, someone's running out of the supermarket. They don't have any time, you know, like how do you, how do you craft your message so that it's heard and, and resonates? And what, you know, regardless of what you're, you're doing in the world, you need to be able to sort of give people the, the right amount of information at the right time. Often when I'm coaching, Young entrepreneurs, I, I like to talk about this stuff in terms of a wedge. You know, at the very tip of the wedge is when you've got no mind share and no attention from your audience. But they call it an elevator pitch because, hey, you randomly run into somebody in the elevator and how do you get their attention in 10 seconds or 15 seconds? You know, if they don't care after that, they're not going to care if you give them a 30-page deck and a two-hour presentation, right? And so, you know, you, you want to be able to slowly leg in to each one of those. So first you, you start with that quick little elevator pitch. Then you leg into what would be interesting in two minutes. And then, you know, what would be interesting in, in half an hour. And, and, and at each stage, you have the opportunity to either excite your audience more or lose them. And so really, you know, sales, I think, gives you a lot of that understanding of how to bring people along that path in a way that gets them all the way, keeps them with you all the way to the end. Well, we don't often think about that before we get into entrepreneurial activities or before we get into sales, but it's often said, like you said, that uh, you even have to sell yourself if you go to get a job. So have you ever actually had a traditional job? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always joke, but I'm basically unemployable. But, you know, I had a lot of internships. And it's funny you should say, have I ever had a real job? I've actually worked in a lot of different industries. And my dad was pretty successful. And, and you know, when you have a successful dad, you want to kind of move out and do your own thing as fast as possible, you know, make your, make a name for yourself, do your own. And so I went in, you know, I got a job when I was 13. Uh, he was really good about, you know, sort of separating his money from our money. He never gave us money and was always like, Hey, you know, you gotta, you know, I'll never forget at 13 saying, Hey, I want to do this thing. And he was like, oh, you don't have enough money for that. And it was really, you know, that, was, <laughs> that was a really great lesson. But, you know, so over the course, I mean, I've bagged groceries. I worked in produce. I worked in retail at the North Face. I worked at a DNA synthesis company. You know, I waited tables, worked, at, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, did a, worked as a sushi chef, as a rock climbing instructor, as a, uh, in fiber optics test and measurement equipment, as a systems administrator, web hosting, web design, email hosting, furniture moving. Man, I've done a lot of different stuff. And so, 
for every one of those, obviously needed to, you know, sell myself into being able to take on the role. But I guess those were all things I did, you know, through high school, college, and a little after college. So I think I never really had a, you know, I didn't graduate from college and shot my resume around, if that's what you mean. (laughs) So you've definitely had an opportunity to see the world from quite a few different angles, because that's a pretty broad stretch from a rock climbing instructor to a fiber optic network. (laughs) <laughs> test administrator. That's a pretty big leap. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different stuff. Yeah, the, the sushi chef always puts people for a loop too. <laughs> that one did catch me a little off guard. So, what yeah. is the trick for creating good sushi? Uh, it's all about preparation and ingredients. Everything. I mean, just it's preparation and ingredients over and over and over again. And then there's this, you know, the the rice is critical. You gotta have, you know, great rice. And once you nail those things, it's you're on the road. I do not think that I have ever had a conversation about sushi on our podcast. This is the first. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these experiences started to lead up to a few things, and you're currently at a, at a company that you co-founded with your friend Eric. What was the path to, to Two-Bit Circus? How did you end up doing what you're doing? And then tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, gosh, that's such a good question. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the time when folks are sort of giving a retrospective, it always seems so clear. It was like, oh, yeah, we had this 10 year vision and it was just crystal clear (laughs) from the beginning. You know, oh, my God, it's been so we, you know, gone in so many different directions and it's been so not that. But what, what happened was, you know, Eric and I met about eight, nine years ago. And we both were doing other things during the day, you know, our backgrounds are both engineering. And so we were both working technical positions, but wanted something else to do nights and weekends. And so we we started building interactive art. I mean, literally the very first time we ever hung out, we started collaborating, making a, a piece of interactive art. And it was literally a camera pointed at a whiteboard. And then a projector pointed to that same whiteboard and you draw on the whiteboard and the camera software would figure out what it is you drew. And then the projector would project circles and squares that would fall from the top and, and, and seem to bounce off of what it was you drew on the whiteboard. So <laughs> fun little That's awesome. right? And so we took that to a, a local event and people really liked it. And so we got all sort of excited and, and started to basically challenge ourselves to make something new every month and kept doing that so we we would build new things we take it to this event this, it was a downtown event in la called MyShare, and we would showcase you know our creations and you know we'd make terrible stuff that nobody liked and then we'd watch why and then we'd make other stuff that people did like that we were like wow why do people like that <laughs> and pretty soon microsoft called and said hey would you guys do our e3 party like we'd love you to do all the entertainment and we were like floored and but excited because we were like god there's a business model here like we've been just sort of screwing around <laughs> um, and basically us as a, as a high-tech circuit was was born and another thing that happened along the way there we ended up collaborating with the rock band OK Go uh, to make a big uh, music video for them this this Rube Goldberg machine if you you know what those are I I do I've seen that video it's like my favorite video (laughs) oh cool all right well yeah that was our team (laughs) oh that's amazing I didn't so so was it their idea to connect with you or your idea to connect with them a good friend of ours, uh, Jamie Ziegelbaum, connected us. Uh, he's a really smart artist uh, uh, from MIT, really does amazing stuff. And he knew the guys from OK Go. And was like, oh, you know, you really got to check out the, the guys at Mindshare Labs, which is what we were called at the time. We were, you know, we were we had the lab side of, of that event, Mindshare. We were building new stuff. So he's like, you should check out Mindshare Labs. And so he made the connection. And then the OK Go guys were like, hey, we want to do this video where we're dancing with a machine. And we all sort of scratch our heads and try to figure it out. And we're like, well, how about a Rube Goldberg machine? And rather than dancing with it, what if it abused you a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> That's 
funny. How long did it take you guys to work up the script? And and out of curiosity, how long did it take to build that thing? And so that whole thing started to finish was three months. And but we did a bunch of before we had the big warehouse, we did it in. We did a bunch of planning for like a month that once we finally moved into the warehouse, we just completely threw all that out because it just didn't make any sense. Like you 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 have to build that stuff kind of in you, you have to kind of you have to be building it in the place that you're going to be doing it, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Rube Goldberg machines are so finicky. They're so weird. And, you know, you realize that you drop a piano over here and everything on a hair trigger on the rest of the floor is going to fall over. <laughs> and so you kind of you kind of need to be in the space you know, to, to do that. It's hard to do it in isolation. You know, having messed with stuff like that a little bit, I could I can appreciate that. And that's one of my favorite videos. So now I have another question. Have yeah. you worked with him on any of the other subsequent videos where they do several no. things? No, we haven't. And and I love, you know, the one that they just did recently, the the Illusions one is so gorgeous. It's I just am so impressed what they did. Yeah. But you guys do things in a similar vein, evidently, or you guys wouldn't have connected. So tell us a little more about Two Bit Circus and where that's going. So, you know, the, the the same thing that was sort of Eric's and my original inspiration of, hey, there's all this great new tech, you know, it's not really being applied to entertainment, like what sort of new things can we build is, is a big forcing function for us is what's the future of fun? You know, given all of the cool tech that's out there, what sort of new things can we do? You know, you, you think about out-of-home entertainment, it hasn't changed since laser tag and mini golf. Now that we've got computer vision and laser projectors and cheap sensors and blah, 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 what's all the new fun stuff we can do? And so that's a, thing, that's a place that we really love to think about and work in. And so 2-Bit is literally a high-tech circus. We build a bunch of big games, you know, stuff that's social and multi, you know, uh, gets people playing together. You, you incorporating that tech, we bring that stuff for big parties and events like, you know, uh, private events. Amazon's holiday party, Intel conferences, that kind of stuff. And then we also have our own events, a traveling carnival called Steam Carnival. We just did in, in Los Angeles last year. We're taking it up to San Francisco this year. Massive event, you know, 90,000 square feet. We brought 13,000 people through it. It's one half all that high-tech amusement we've been building for a long time, sort of a reimagining of carnival games. And then the other half is project-based kits to get kids excited about engineering. So a bunch of hands-on workshops and things to share with kids. So, you know, all the stuff that we love about engineering and how, how they can get involved. So we spent a ton of time on that. And then we have been doing a lot of 360 video capture recently also. It's another sort of future of fun thing for us is VR is here to stay. And is finally, the, you know, the tools are finally great enough. So we've done some really interesting capture for big sports franchises and whatnot. So you can feel what it's like to dunk on a, on a professional basketball court or, you know, that kind of stuff. Show people really great experiences. So you guys are focusing in on the, the fun aspects of technology and learning. And I'm curious, how much of that do you think is related to the thinking and things that were happening as you were growing up? Is that tightly connected? Uh, tightly. I mean, we were growing up, we were always going to the uh, IAPA, which is the big amusement park convention, and it's sort of immersed in that space of seeing sort of what's new, what's out there. And so this is, you know, really right in line with my whole upbringing. And so as you were thinking about the future of fun and entertainment, how did education come in from the left on that one? Yeah, good question. So particularly after the OK Go video, we had a lot of calls from parents and teachers saying, hey, wow, thanks so much. That was really great. Our kids loved it. And now we're making a Rube Goldberg machine in our school, in our class. And here's the video of some of the best ones and, you know, that kind of thing. We were sort of like scratching our heads like, gosh, you know, we're not 
educators, like why are teachers calling us? And, you know, it got us sort of thinking like engineering and, you know, sciences and whatnot sort of has a branding problem. People don't think about it in the same exciting way that we are living, you know, here we get to play with lasers and fire and robots all day. Like, that's awesome. It's so much different than what people normally think of as like boring engineering stuff. And so we felt like we had kind of a special opportunity as, you know, effectively rock stars of, of engineering. Like, how can we share our excitement and enthusiasm for this stuff and, and the fact that it could be cool stuff with other kids? And then personally, all the core two-bit team loves mentorship. And, you know, I personally mentor kids all the time in entrepreneurship and game development. And, you know, our lead engineer, Dan, is an amazing teacher and background in physics. And so we all personally like it a lot and felt like this was a nice venue to, to, to share that. You mentioned that engineers and scientists have not done a good job of branding themselves. And I just talked to a professor at uh, Cornell uh, not too long ago about this exact topic. In fact, I think he's going to be on the podcast as well. In fact, depending on how I order the episodes, he might be before or after this episode. But oh, cool. He mentioned that exact problem. He, he actually went to Washington for a while as a, I guess, a science liaison to some of the programs and some of the uh, uh, committees and stuff there in Washington. And let me ask you an opinion question. Sure. As physicists, you know, chemists, biologists, engineers, you know, thinking about interacting with the society. What's your opinion about branding ourselves better? I mean, it, it's cool to have people like you who do this, but what lessons can we learn from that to do a better job on our side? Man, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, if you're an inspired person, you're inspiring. When you share your love of something with somebody else in an authentic way and you are really share why it is you love you know, what it is you love about that stuff, I think it's hard for folks to not get excited about that. So for me, one place for everybody, engineers, non-engineers, whatnot, is mentorship is ridiculously valuable. And it's something that anybody can do because everybody has something to teach a kid. And so just going out there and sharing what you're passionate about is something that is really wonderful. And, you know, I mean, the, our current school system of 30 kids in a class and whatnot is not because like, it's like that's the best way to do it, right? It just so happens like resource-wise, that's a good way to do it. It's not necessarily that it's the best for the kid. And so the more that, that folks can go out there and just share what they're passionate about, the better. So that's sort of one real high-level approach. And, and hey, by the way, mentorship, like, literally, you, you know, not only is it great for the kid, but it's great for you. You get exposed to exposure to these neat, creative ideas. Kids come up with the weirdest stuff. And the act of mentorship causes you, you know, release of oxytocin. You know, and, and even better, watching somebody else mentor releases oxytocin. So it's nuts. So that's one piece. And then I think the, the other thing is it's easy to not appeal to people on their level. Engineering is complex and there's lots of aspects to it. And if your goal is to not reach people, then yeah, talk to them as if the engineer sits right next to you and you'll, they'll be completely lost. But try to imagine if you hadn't been through eight years of engineering school, would this concept make sense? Like try to speak with people on their level so that they can understand you. You know, I mean, these concepts can be boiled down into something that is simpler and easier to digest try to deliver it in a way that is that people all understand i completely agree with that and i was thinking about something similar to this in a similar context recently and one of the things that that we do on the side is we all we work with teenagers and we do similar things working with 3d printers and arduinos and stuff and you know, helping them get excited about the science and you're right about the inspiring if you walk in the door and it's kind of quiet and you don't say a whole lot and you're not very excited, 
the kids will mirror that. But if you start off the day with like a really cool video, the uh, Rube Goldberg machine, for instance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and then say, we're going to we're gonna start building some cool stuff today. Well, immediately in their mind, what they think is all the cool stuff they just saw in the video. And what else could you do besides that? And they just do these really cool, amazing things. And I think we have a bad habit. And this is no offense to who, whatever automotive engineer, you know, created this. But, you know, it's the difference between an old Chevrolet Citation and a Lamborghini Diablo or, you know, Ferrari Testarossa or, you know, I don't know, a, an F-18 or a, I mean, just those things are really inspiring because they're fast and they're cool and they're tuned up and kids can really identify with that excitement. Yeah, but a Chevy Citation version of engineering and science is typically what we give them. So how do we do more of the Lamborghini version and less of the Citation version? Yes, exactly. And that's, you know, in, in, in our carnival, that was why we picked music and fashion and games, because we sort of know all kids like that stuff. And we could kind of hijack it a little bit, reposition it so that, you know, to leverage that stuff, leverage those interests in order to be able to get to the sort of the harder topics of programming and electronics and but through a, a venue that we know they like. So what kinds of activities do you do with the kids? What kind of, uh, what kind of things have you had the kids trying and doing? You mentioned Rube Goldberg's. What are the, what are the kinds of things? Yeah, so other stuff that's, that's worked really nicely, we, we used the Makey Makey so that the kids could make their own game controller. Mm -hmm. um, that was wonderful. You know, Scratch is MIT's tool for teaching programming. It's been another really valuable thing. We've sort of given them initial understanding with programming and electronics through those things and then leveled up to say, okay, now make your own game and giving them sort of a set of tools to do that. With a bunch of different groups, we've done a, a wearable electronics workshop, so kids are making their own wearable electronics. The fun thing about both these is a whole bunch of kids making games culminates in an arcade. A whole bunch of kids making wearable electronics culminates in a fashion show. So these are sort of exciting <laughs> things that they can showcase by the time they're done, different from you know a terrible science fair where everybody's showcasing a baking soda and vinegar volcano. <laughs> so you guys do showcases at the end of this. You have them build stuff and you have them show it off. Yes. Events are, are important, right? The showcase is important. A, it's time pressure, right? You're either ready or not at the time of the event. But then you also are, you know, it's an opportunity for the kids to share and, and, and bask in the glory for a second of having made something cool. So now that we're here in the middle of education talking about this, I think that our audience would be very interested to understand kind of how you think about education and maybe some of the experiences you had coming through the educational system and maybe some reflections about that. I'm sorry, say that again? Uh, maybe that's a little big. Let's <laughs> start off really simple. Tell us a little bit about your experience coming through the education system. You know, everybody's got their complaints, right? And I don't want to complain because there's the reality of the situation, right? The a big bureaucracy is, is, is there to be fault tolerant and continue to operate, you know, if it loses any number of the people involved. And, you know, there's some good reason for that. But big bureaucracies are slow. They're very resistant to change. And so those were challenging, right? Because whether you've got a good solution or not, it's hard to sort of get it in there. And so we found that you know, because it was so difficult to, to navigate inside of the formal education system, right, what people are doing Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., we looked at the after-school systems as really great ways to get our programs out. And in many ways, after-school is a petri dish, right? It's the place yeah. where things can be tested and it's low pressure because the kids are assumedly learning the main curriculum during the day. But an after-school is even, even more you know, of a special petri dish because the kids don't have to be there, right? And so they, you know, the balance of power has shifted, right? The kids are going to vote with their feet if they don't like what you're doing. They're going to leave. <laughs> uh, 
And so we found that to be a great way to sort of vet and test this stuff because then the other piece is, is once you've got some proof of efficacy there, teachers would much rather talk to other teachers than to talk to administrators or, you know, whatnot. So to be able to say, oh, yeah, we did this thing with the Girl Scouts, this troop over here, and they loved it. And then they can, you know, sort of get validate that with their peers. So that was a big piece that was, was interesting uh, to sort of evolve and understand. And then, you know, with time, that stuff can scale and find its way into the day, day long. And by then, you're able to say, hey, we did it with all these after school programs and they loved it. And this is the results. And these are what happened to the kids. And now you've got sort of more things that a bureaucrat can sort of buy into uh, rather than something untested and experimental. Yeah. So what was your experience personally as a, you know, first grader, as a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grader, as a high schooler coming through the educational system? You know, my folks weren't really militant about us getting great grades. And so I was sort of always, you know, I'm a slow reader. So I really had a hard time with English and history. So sort of no wonder that I became an engineer, <laughs> not a lawyer, I guess. Right. So I really, you know, wish that I'd had things like audio books and whatnot. I would have gone I would have been able to have done so much better, I think, in those classes. But my favorite teacher was my physics teacher in high school because he was very project based. You know, we were building all kinds of, you know, solving problems and building products. And, you know, he was he always had us sort of thinking really creatively, which I loved. I mean, one of the things we had to do was we had to solve some safety problem. And, you know, we had to do patent searches to make sure it didn't exist. We had to do feasibility studies. We had to make a prototype. We had to do just sort of all this stuff to create this real thing. And it was so awesome, right? I mean, this was a physics class, but we're like not only doing design and engineering, but coming up with marketing and business cases, sort of all this other stuff. I mean, yeah, was that just a physics class? Not really, you know, but it was, <laughs> I just loved the, the, the very sort of hands-on nature of that. So that was always really, that was really fun. And then I, you know, after high school, I had a very sort of, uh, the rest of my education has all been the sort of fits and starts. I mean, I went to school for a year and then I left and went to work and started my first company and then went back to school, uh, you know, sort of running that company half the time and then left again. And, you know, I mean, I've been in and out of school a lot just because I, you know, wanted, really wanted to be working and, and have my, get my hands dirty, but then, you know, would, would, would go back to sort of augment my skills. So that was always, I, I wasn't really on the sort of standard track. <laughs> Well, that actually sounds familiar. We've been interviewed several uh, entrepreneurs and professionals um, on the podcast, you know, with an eye toward those who are actually doing really well in their field. So, you mentioned your physics teacher, and I have to a confession to make. So, I'm I'm a physicist, and and I also had an issue with reading. Uh, I I do not read fast, and my mom never said that I had a reading disability, but I kind of remember this lady when I was in like between my first and second grade years that I went to spend some time with her during the summer. And I think we did reading training or something. And I think all my brothers did that. Wow. So I suspect that my mom kind of did some reading remediation and didn't tell me, by the way, you can't read. She just said, Hey, we're going to go do this thing. And so I never had the idea that I was a bad reader. I just always kind of felt that I read slow and you know, I got coping skills, and so I managed to, you know, figure out how to read journals without reading every single word in the journal. I would read through the, you know, grab the important information out of it, and you know, move on and do stuff in the lab, which is where my passion was. So when you're you talk about your physics instructor doing things like having you build devices and patent searches, that would have been right up my alley because I love that kind of stuff. And now I remember what was in my head a second ago, as you came through this system, uh, you got you know, kind of through high school and then kind of did education on a part-time basis. 
because you were too busy doing stuff. And a lot of the entrepreneurs and uh, professionals that we've interviewed on our podcast have had a similar experience. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your motivation to go to school and then your motivation to do other stuff outside of that realm after after high school. You know, even from the time I was little, as we talked about earlier, always wanted to be working. You know, I always really had had that drive. And so, you know, school, it drove me nuts, school, when it was sort of out of context, right? Like, oh, nebulously, you're going to need this thing, you know? Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> I could really, you know, sink my teeth into like, hey, like, you know, right around the time that I was going to college was the dot-com craziness, the first Internet 1.0. And so there was sort of all this exciting stuff happening over there and then just sort of like a bunch of theory and general stuff happening in school. I just was, you know, it was such a clear answer of what to do. And so I, that was when I left and started my first company. But then what happened was, you know, the formal education system is is awesome because it gives you scope and breadth. When you're self-taught, you don't really know what you don't know. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I didn't know if I had good breadth or if I had just sort of scratched the surface on a few things. And so when I went back to school, it was awesome because I'd already been working in computer science a lot and I was going back to UCLA for, for computer science. I was able to really have real application. It was like, wow, I had that problem in this, you know, and now I'm in databases. Oh my God, I had that problem. You know, and, and this was, now I was ready to be at the front of the class and the super nerd because it had, it was relevant now. When that stuff was abstract, it was driving me nuts. And so I think that, you know, to the extent that this stuff, you can really see how it applies to your life, it's it's all the more important. And that was what really made all the difference for me. So I'm hearing some themes through all of this. I'm hearing fun, and I'm hearing uh, work, and I'm hearing relevance. Does, yeah. that, does that kind of ring true through... And it kind of looks like you tried to bring that into two-bit circus, that all those things are there. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, like, you know, fun for us is, a, is an important piece of this and, you know, making it making it relevant, making it exciting. Uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, on some level, it's not rocket science, <laughs> but it is in, in certain domains, especially education, is stuff that's gotten lost a little bit. And uh, And then I think in the case of entertainment, you know, people are always looking for new stuff. We get jaded quickly. You don't go and watch the same movie over and over again. You want novelty. And I think that a lot of the out-of-home entertainment things aren't relevant to today's consumer. You know, we get to play all this crazy awesome tech and whatnot when we're at home. Like, why why can't we do that out in public too? <laughs> My wife loves to call that coming to school into a resource deficit environment because <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. she, she sees that a lot. She she teaches community college and talks to teachers a lot. And that's, that's the thing that comes across her mind. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to get to our, our last two questions. And the first question is, given the digital age that we're in with uh, Google and YouTube and Wikipedia and all these resources on the internet to to learn stuff or to just grab information. What does it mean to be, quote, educated? What does that word educated mean now? Uh, I mean, I would say that it's it is a curious, capable learner, someone who has that base foundation of, of skills, ability to write, ability to do arithmetic, and then the ability to like do research. And then, you know, you, you pair those things with creativity and curiosity. And I think you've got an educated individual. They, they, they now have the tools to go off and be self-sufficient, you know, be you know, able to solve problems on their own. And I think that's the big key. I like that you put curious in there. We, we very often miss that one, but that's another word that, that was in the themes of things. It just didn't come to mind when I said that. A necessity of being excited by life and being curious about what's next or what's over there or what's behind the corner. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, God, people will just race once they are ready to, you know, once they're curious about the world. There's no shortage of fun stuff to get involved in or hard problems to solve or whatnot. We really just need to switch the light bulb on, you know. I think I agree with that. So we'll wrap it up with this last question. And it's, in some level, a deep question and the other levels are quite a simple question. And it's, what is the purpose of an education? I think it's about accomplishing those those things we just discussed, right? Switching on that creative drive and getting just a base set of skills in place so that, you know, that person who is curious can read, you know, the, the reports online and they can do some of this simple math and, you know, they, they know how to solve problems or learn about things that they don't know. And that we basically just need to get every learner to that state where they feel empowered and they feel curious and they, you know, have the base set of skills to be able to act on whatever problem they want to go and solve. All right. So we'll wrap it up with this last question. So you are definitely an empowered individual. We've heard that all the way through the interview here. What can an empowered person not do? What can they not do? You know, I mean, it'd probably be easy to, you know, too, too much of a low-hanging fruit to say there's nothing that you can't do, you know. But, <laughs> but you know, I really do believe that the for, for someone who is really driven and, you know, willing to think outside the box, there is just a crazy amount of opportunity. Given certain decisions people make in life and high school and college and whatnot, it might make being running for president, it might take that off the table. <laughs> you know, it might take certain things that where, you know, your life is going to be under really fine review, fine, you know, critical review. But the, the landscape's really wide open for, for someone who's curious and excited about life. I couldn't agree more. Well, why don't you stay on for just a minute after we wrap this up? In the meantime, as we wrap this up, What's the best way for our audience to connect with you? You know, I would say over Twitter uh, is a good one. I'm pretty good on that. And uh, my handle's just my name, Brent Bushnell, one word. Uh, but yeah, Twitter's definitely a good place to start. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brent, for taking a few minutes to talk to us and uh, talk to our audience this afternoon. Awesome, Steve. Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?